the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. Today I'm speaking with an international leader in urban policy and city shaping, Dr. Ed Blakely, about building resilient, livable, lovable cities. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Ed, I am a huge fan, and it is a great privilege to gain insights from your distinguished career as we explore what we need to be actively doing as urban planners to ensure our cities are resilient, livable, and lovable. I want to start by sharing with listeners the important roles you play and have played in urban and economic development, because it provides an essential context for our discussion. You are a former honorary professor of urban policy at the University of Sydney, an Emeritus Professor of Urban Planning at the University of California, Berkeley. You led New Orleans out of the worst urban disaster in American history following its devastation by Hurricane Katrina. You serve as a National Advisor on Urban Planning, Innovation and Development for the World Bank and OECD. You're a permanent visiting professor at the University of Venice in climate change and disaster recovery. You have advised presidents of the United States in the Clinton and Nixon administrations. In Australia, you were chair of the Sydney Metropolitan Plan in 2003, district commissioner for the Greater Cities Commission for the Central City District, an acting commissioner of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, chair of the West Central Sydney Planning Panel, where you presided over more than 100 hearings and issued more determinations than any other panel in the metropolitan area. Your work in the Future Cities Program has seen you lead city revisioning programs across 19 cities in the Sydney metropolitan area. You are a senior consultant for Chalk and Berent, a leading Australian firm specialising in native land claims and Aboriginal economic development, a commissioner in the Federal Court of Australia for native title land claims and a director of Blakely Global. In addition to these appointments, you are also a recipient of numerous prestigious awards and you're an author. You truly are a rock star in urban planning and development. Looking back, can I ask who or what motivated you to become an urban planner? Uh, it's interesting. I think it's a thing that if there's some young people listening, I'd like them to hear. Uh, when I got out of the military, which was compulsory in my day, I did what all young people do. I took my trip to Europe. But I had a destination. I'd signed up uh, to be a pe- kind of a Peace Corps volunteer. They call them uh, uh, World Help Volunteers in Italy. And when I got there, they said, oh, Peace Corps, we're glad to see you. And I said, I'm not a member of the Peace Corps. Oh, well, this guy told us you were. And by the way, we need a new school. And uh, the city center has to be refixed. Now, this was in about 1964 or so, and the city center had not been fixed since the Second World War. There were still bullet holes in buildings. And I thought to myself, why in the world would they ask me to do this? And the guy, Jim Brown, who told them about me, had been listening to the stories I was telling about my father, who was the superintendent of buildings in San Bernardino County, the largest county in California, telling me when I was listening to him and we were driving around the car, how poorly cities were built and how bad buildings were. And this would lead to bad consequences. 
And I thought about that and I said, well, maybe I've got a chance to make a nice city that will not lead to bad consequences. And fortunately, this was Italy where a lot of Italian workers who worked in New York knew a lot more than I did. So I listened to them and we rebuilt the city. And I, when I finished that, what do I do? I go back to UCLA and playing American football and uh, study for a degree in urban planning. So this is now, I think, my 55th year at that. And I've loved every single day. Is there one particular role that you've taken on that just stands out as, as something that you know, you're particularly fond of? I think there are a couple, but one of them is New York City, where I and I'm still on Emeritus New York City uh, Plan, RPA. And RPA is a regional plan for greater New York, covers northern New Jersey all the way up to Connecticut. And we planned out there how cities within that area have been built, how the transportation system should work. And when people think of New York City, they forget the reason New York City is great is it's connected. You can get from anywhere in New York to anywhere else yeah. with about 20 minutes from someplace in Connecticut. And those connections and the reuse of buildings, New York buildings are all reused from housing to schools to this to that. And it's not different to go to a doctor on the 36th floor in New yeah. York City or to a seamstress on the 22nd floor. Here we made regulations where those people should go. And when they go away, what do you use the building for? So if you don't make buildings and the city's flexible, you have problems. Uh, so New York City, uh, number one. And then, of course, New Orleans. And when I arrived in New Orleans, I said to the mayor, uh, what are your instructions? He said, rebuild the city. I said, how long? He said, it shouldn't take me more than two years. I did it in three. <laughs> that is an amazing fate. Yeah. And the president, uh, this time, by the time I finished, it was Obama, and I met him while I was doing it. And uh, President Obama, who was out here recently, kept saying, how'd you do that? <laughs> so if you know what you're doing, it can be done. And the thing I've always done, and I learned this early on, is not point to the problem of the present, but to the future and the problems in between where you are and where the future will be. So those are the two roles, I think, I are still in me, and I still play them out. I'll be going to Europe this year again, uh, working on city plans. Fantastic. Well, that's really a good um, segue into how we rethink cities post-COVID. And I know you're passionate about this as well. I guess when we think about resilience, the COVID pandemic didn't just test our individual strength. It tested the resilience of our cities and our communities to cope with sudden devastation on a global scale. And daily, we all witnessed great pain and extraordinary innovation, you know, which was wonderful when we were looking at, like, particularly, I think, coming out of small business. I'm very passionate about small business being mm -hmm. a small business, but I do love how we saw a lot of small businesses adapt very quickly. Um, and during this time, you advised many government leaders in Australia and globally um, on economic development. So I thought we'd start by talking about how 
you think we should be, I guess, looking at our cities post-COVID? And I was hoping that you'd share some of the findings from your recent work in this area. So from your perspective, Ed, what will the city of the future look like post-COVID? Well, we have to stop thinking of the city. Um, We have terms about cities, CBD, Central Business District. Think about this. There was no Central Business District when I was born. I'm 85 years old. There were no Central Business Districts then. The center of the city, when I grew up, was a place of lots of fun, spontaneous behavior, markets, and so on. I grew up in New York, Los Angeles, and my father used to take me to downtown L.A. And in downtown L.A., you could buy flowers, you could buy food, and there were some businesses. And my father had worked at the Pacific Stock Exchange. And it was like the old exchanges, you know, people were walking around outside with cards and saying they're going to buy some of this American motors and this and that. And you could hear them. So the city was open, energetic. And what we've done, we've closed the city. It doesn't breathe anymore. My father went to high school a few blocks from where the center of the city was. And so the city was alive. And when we started building these skyscrapers, sanitizing the city. Uh, Interestingly enough, New York's most important, well-known skyscraper, the Empire State Building, has been a mausoleum from the day it was built because it didn't represent the city's needs at the time, and it still hasn't been occupied. Uh, So what New York learned from that was to make cities in the downtown. A lot of people live in downtown New York. And you can come downstairs in your apartment building in New York, and on the corner, you can buy your bread and vegetables and stuff still. Yeah. Uh, Coffee shops, all that kind of stuff, built in and around the buildings. So, and New York, I think, has 135 parks. Most people think Central Park is the only park. It's not even the biggest park in New York. So what we have to do is go back to the future, remaking our downtowns as livable places and integrating them with all the activities of life. And the internet is on making that happen. Uh, The work we're doing now can be done anywhere. Mm. So why not have a studio like this on the top floor of a building and meanwhile you live on the next floor and there's bread on the third or fourth floor. All this zoning we have is to segregate things. We have to start integrating things. Now, this is still true in Berlin and cities like that that never learned the bad lessons of the future. (laughs) So they're great places to live. I think we need to do this. Uh, Now, let's just talk about Sydney and Melbourne and the cities we have now. Uh, Clearly, I work with other cities around the world, and mostly I'm working in Venice now. Uh, Venice is a good lesson for us. Venice is a city that's become old, but never useless. Mm. And so what we're planning for Venice now is to make it the world's biggest university. The learning city for the world. Wouldn't you like to go to Venice to learn? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And when I finish my lectures in Venice in the evening uh, for dinner, and I'm usually there by myself, 
I run into students, they say, Professor, let's go over here. (laughs) (laughs) Or the student might be from Afghanistan or wherever. And in that melting pot, I'm still professing at 11 o'clock at night, just like Socrates. So you make a city what it is. It has been the place of fashioning knowledge, fashion, and so forth forever. So what has Sydney been? It's been the city of transactions. And so we got to get back to that. It's never been a manufacturing city in this notion of us holding on to industrial space is kind of silly, isn't it? Mm. We should be holding on to creative space because that's what this city is. And we should be making the downtown the district for innovation, not putting an innovation district on the edge of downtown. That'll never work. Mm. We have to put the innovation at the heart. So we should start replanning every city for a set of functions that will go on their own. Because the way our cities are being propped up now by a sink, we've taken the wrong lessons from Detroit. Detroit was the motor city and nothing else. LA was a railroad city and nothing else. So we have to start replaying our cities so they have a kind of a central language about them, the kind of thing. So since we're a city of transactions, we should have media downtown. Mm-hmm. Media labs downtown, we should be the Hollywood of the Pacific. Uh, I think it's great that the ABC is there. We should just kind of spring and open up the ABC and UTS and all that. And think how great it would be for kids to see studios like this everywhere Mm. and make this kind of the playland of creativity. Now, if you don't have that vision, you can never achieve it. Uh, and we just don't have that vision. We have a vision of money first, not of place and people first. So I think the lesson for all cities, and when I'm in Germany this year, uh, in Leipzig, we'll be talking about this from people from all around the world. We meet every year. I think we've been meeting 20 some years. We publish a book every year from our learnings and sharings, people from Beijing, people from Lisbon and so on, and each of us. And this year, uh, the whole notion is what should the center of the city be? The future of the center of the city. Now, Paris has a great, easy problem. The damn opera house is in the city center. Our opera house is a bit off to the side, but so every city has to rethink its heart. And that's what our papers will be about. And I'll learn from them and I'll, they'll learn from me. Uh, the other thing is we have to start learning not to put things outside the city that people need, but inside the city. The motor car is dying. So the places where department stores are really thriving are the places where they were put in the first place. So the department stores are not dying in New York City because when you get off the train, so for the department stores right there. And we're starting to suburbanize here. And these suburbs are really disasters because they have no town associated with them. Uh, So I think what we have to do uh, is go back, and this is the moment for it, uh, with our civic leaders and our communities. And we took the opportunity when I was in um, New York uh, after 9-11 to replan New York City downtown. 
the floods and things that came, New York City is better than it ever was, even after COVID, because we replanned the city to serve the function of media and, I'd imagine, and information. And I imagine New York wouldn't be going through the same issues that you know Sydney is going through. I mean, Sydney's deserted still mm-hmm. during the week. You know, we've got different businesses trying to promote, come back to the city on a Friday for lunch, you know, bring your workers back for, you know, the, fr- the notion of the Friday lunch. I mean, imagine that New York hasn't gone through that sort of desertion of their, their city centre. And that's because the New York City commissioners, in their wisdom, did things like the High Line. Yeah. Way I before the there was a COVID, all right? Where's Wicks? located the people who do the web pages mm. right near the high line where's google located in the old uh, meat district mm. they didn't build some edifice they built right into the city and across the street is public housing yeah and the public housing kids are wandering through google and so forth and some of those public housing kids are now inventors and have started their own businesses and doing podcasts and so on. So this was an accident we had. Okay, 9-11. What we do? We recreated the city. What we're trying to do is make the city as it was rather than make it more creative for what it needs to be. Melbourne has less of a problem because of the lanes. And like downtown Melbourne is alive again mm. already. Because it's like going to a living room. I can go to downtown uh, Melbourne by myself and have a great time. Mm. Downtown Sydney by myself is really desperate. Yeah, it's very hard to know where to go, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's nothing <laughs> attractive. So, so we have to start thinking about redoing the city. Now, what Clover did by bringing in the light rail and making George Street a more interesting street and a street where there's fine you got to think about what's along the street. Uh, so we have um, not thought about, we did the light rail. Well, what goes with the light rail? Mm. And uh, they're redoing the light rail in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a big thing when I was a kid that I talked about earlier. And what they're doing is making these light rail stops really interesting places to go in themselves. Yeah. We're using light rail just to move people from one end to, to the other, but not making interesting nodes along, from, the along the way. That's the purpose of a light rail. Do you think we're sort of trying to just overplan the city? It's almost making trying to make it, I don't know, too too perfect. I mean, I look at the mm. the two developments that have you know the two new buildings that have gone down um, a circular key, sort of key quadrant, that sort of that development with the, you know, the redevelopment of um, the AMP tower and um, the new, what is it, the new Salesforce tower that's gone Mm -hmm. up. Um, I mean, they're beautiful buildings in their own. But they don't connect to anything. But they don't connect to anything. And and most people don't get to enjoy the amazing views that those buildings are experiencing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I sort of... You, that's the thing. You sort of you walk around the city, and and you're ab- absolutely right. There, there's there's nowhere to sort of venture into to discover. Well, interesting enough, they did the right thing with the modern museum, mm. museum of yes, modern art. Yes, when yes, they yes. built the floors up, they made it inviting. So I had my 70th birthday there. What a great party! 
that was a great party. They just finished it. Uh, the light show was going on, etc. The building was inviting and the spaces around it were inviting. These buildings pull away mm. and you don't feel like you can go into them. Yeah. And, and while they're, they're isolating. And while they've tried to create the network of um, laneways at, mm. at the rear, again, they, they're almost They're like, scary. They're, they're, yeah, they're dwarfed. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're just, mm-hmm. the buildings are so imposing within themselves that the pedestrian experience is so sort of, yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, but you don't think of a building first, you think of the ground first. The ground, yeah. And that's what I learned while I was at Berkeley, and that's what I taught that you think from the ground and then the building is informed by what the groundscape is, not the reverse. Uh, But remember, our buildings are unitary. A developer comes in. I don't know why we have city planners since they never plan. Mm -hmm. City planners in the U.S. actually plan where the buildings are going to be. And they don't say how high they're going to be. They talk about functions and things like this. And then they bring in some developers and they come together and they approve some buildings and the developers build the buildings. There's not this fight. You can't build this here. No, it's done together. And I think that's one of the things that we have to learn how to do, how to build for something, not to get the money that comes from something. And that's a very hard, hard lesson for us. I don't know how we get away because the way you make money here is through real estate. Mm. It's not for creating anything. Uh, Atlantis, I believe, is our only really big tech company. When we have so many brains here, we have so many incredible people here, and they're not joined up anywhere. Every professor I know who's important has another appointment in the United States or the UK or Germany. So their minds are not here. Mm. Uh, They go to where... And I'm, gosh, I'm guilty too. I just told you I'm going off to (laughs) Europe. Uh, And I go every year because that's the enlightening place. I'm not enlightened the same way as when I'm all my colleagues from around the world in Venice. We start our meetings at 9 o'clock in the morning over coffee and so forth. We end up at midnight in two or three different venues. Um, You couldn't do that here. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like listening to your talk, it's we just don't seem to have, um, I guess, in the culture to embrace that sort of collaboration that you it seems to be occurring certainly in the United States, um, and we just seem to be overly burdened by regulation. Well, the regulations um, start from fear, mm. not from hope. Yeah, Whenever that's a good point. Why do we make regulations rather than think about how do you make a Nobel Prize winner? Yeah. How's spending time there? How do we overcome the problems of uh, racial segregation and isolation? And if we think about that, we want to regulate a future rather than compose things to do it. So I think uh, a lot of this comes from uh, what I think is us thinking every place else is smarter than we are and inferior and complex. Mm-hmm. And the other is controlling what we have rather than going for more. Uh, our athletes are almost the opposite. They're competing against the world. They're not competing against one another. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's why our athletes do so well. Uh, and I wish we could. Uh, but I think it's the water you drink in a sense that I don't know. Uh, we talk about these things, and many of my colleagues would agree with many of the things I'm saying, but they certainly wouldn't tear down the planning department. And I don't know, and I, th and I think some of that's happening in the U.S. People are now uh, boxed into this fight over going right or left rather than saying, what's going to make a better future for everybody? Yeah, I like that point that you, you, you just made where you said, you know, we, we get so hung up on controlling what we have rather than thinking that we can actually have more. Yeah. And, and I mean, that is such a good point. It's, you know, and, and certainly, you know, in the area that we, we spend a lot of our time in community consultation, it's the, the debate coming from the community is always about holding on to the past. We, we don't want change. What you're trying to introduce here is wrong. It, it is. It's always about just, no. And the reason for that is we don't have a collective sense of holding on to what we have. It's every dog for himself. If we have a plan for housing on this block and a developer comes and buys some buildings and so forth and wants to put up uh, an apartment building there, we say, well, I'm glad I have my house rather than that ain't going to happen here. In some of the best cities, interestingly enough, and small towns in the U.S. have no zoning at all or planning. They have no planning officials at all. And these are amazingly nice places to live. It's a bold, it's a bold thought, isn't it? Oh, you just sort of think of <laughs> throwing out all of the... All no, of the because the community comes to agreement. That's yeah. what most of New England. You got those nice little... They don't have any planning commission mm. or planning body. And the people in the community say, yeah, we kind of like, we, well, we'd like to have an ice cream store. Let's get an ice cream store. Let's, you know. Uh, one uh, community, the high school, uh, burned down. And everyone says, what do we do now? Oh, is the shopping mall about to close? They put the high school there. Everybody's happy. Mm. Didn't spend an extra buck. Great we, reuse. <laughs> just, no. I mean, it was yeah. a natural thing to think of. Yeah. And... Uh, when I first came here, I came, I just came from Los Angeles, and I said, well, why don't we make our, uh, our schools uh, higher? Why, why would we buy more land? They said, no, we can't do that here. It's against the regulation. I said, well, kids in Los Angeles look pretty much the same as kids here. <laughs> and, and guess what? You know, stores and things like that are closing. We're turning them into kindergartens. Oh, we can't do that. What are we doing now? Mm. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. But we're doing it for the wrong reason now. We're doing it for the money rather than the fact integrating kids back into the fabric of community mm. is what we want to do. And I love what we're doing with the high school here in Mossman. It's a beautiful school. Uh, now let's integrate the kids in the community because these are musicians and artists and some of us should be doing inter internships in a place like this and so on mm. and making the school bigger than the buildings and that's what we're doing in venice when you go to university in venice it's not in one building it's yeah. all over the city i think i'd, I'd love venice as my campus <laughs> wouldn't anybody yeah absolutely another place <laughs> would be great as a campus is moscow mm. now we you know forget all the politics moscow's a great city Oh, it was an interesting statement again that you just made, but forget all the politics. It must really leads me into another area that I'd like to talk with you about. And we've touched on it a little bit, but about the role of government 
in city shaping. There was a significant announcement recently um, by the Premier when he, he announced that the Greater Cities Commission was going to be disbanded. Having served it as a district commissioner between, I think it was between 2015 and 2018, can I ask what your reaction was to this news? Came too late. They should have done it earlier because I don't think anybody here can think of what the commission did. Now, if you're talking about the New York Planning Commission, now the New York Planning Commission actually plans where things are going to happen in New York. Why do we need a planning department and a planning commission in New York? That's one thing. Mm -hmm. And I said to Rob Stokes when we were about to do this, I said, we can't have a planning department and a planning commission. Uh, It has to be one thing. And the planning commission has to be the place where planning is done. There are no... Uh, many of the uh, boroughs uh, and communities in New York are far bigger than Mosman or Parramatta. They don't have a planning body that plans them because New York is planned as a whole. People in Yonkers help plan their area and the place where I live, Douglaston, we had a whole little planning committee. Uh, my next-door neighbor was chairing it and we were in fights all the time about what was going to go on in Douglaston. But these fights were all about the future, not about the present. And people in Douglaston felt they had as much to say about Manhattan as Douglaston. So when we are planning, it shouldn't be about Mosman or Parramatta or Leichhardt. It should be about the city and how can all of us live in these places and how we all contribute to that fact, uh, fabric. And that's what the commission was supposed to do. But I think the commissioners had no experience like that, so they couldn't get their heads around. And so they started learning how to stop things. And one of the first things we stopped was uh, what we called industrial lands, prohibit. I said, no, this is backward. We should come up with a policy uh, for reuse and revitalization of the industries of the future. And we should use these lands as catalytic. So someplace that's making same cement may start making media labs. So the media labs in Boston are old Navy yards. <laughs> they didn't think about stopping building there. They said, bring us some creative ideas of how to make something new. That's what the commission should have been doing, mm. not about stopping what was being done. And, um, of course, um, I'm wrongheaded, so they said bye-bye to me. Uh, and uh, I've been kicked out of worse places, <laughs> so why not? I, I think the commission um, could not serve its mandate, and the commissioners uh, were again cordoned off into their districts. I I didn't like the idea of district commissioners. I thought that should be commissioners, but the commissioners should be the commissioners of the cities working with all the cities. So all the cities come to the commission and present their plans. I mean, physically come. Parramatta brings its plan Mm. to the commission and the transportation department's there and all these departments. And you say, oh, wait a minute. We're building the city and there's no road into it. And that's exactly what's happened. So the commission in that stage would then step in and... And And bring it all together. And bring it all together, yeah. So no one in transportation could say... No, we're not going to do that. No, you would not tell the New York Planning Commission when you're building Hudson Yards, we're not going to cover over the yards because we're the railroad. 
you're the railroad. We are the planning commissioners of New York. Goodbye. So they had, so it sounds like in New York, the planning commissioners have a lot of power. Total. Total power, yeah. And they're not elected. They're appointed for terms longer than the uh, mayor. So what, what is the, ter- what is, I'm interested in, because like, I think time frames have a really big impact. So what would a commissioner's time frame be in in New York? I think 12 years or something like so that. So that's a decent amount of time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, you, that can deliver change. Yeah. Because yeah. we're working here always, aren't we, on a sort of like three, with political terms, yeah. three to four years, yeah. which just isn't yeah. long enough. In city uh, commissioners in Brooklyn where I lived uh, in Los Angeles, there are 12 year terms. They're only paid to come to the meeting. They don't get any other pay. A New York planning commissioners get a little more than I think they make like a hundred thousand dollars a year. But these people came from jobs where they made four hundred thousand dollars a year. So yeah. you're doing it for you because you love the city. You love the city, yeah. Again, looking at your experience, you are frequently called on to mentor and guide metropolitan leaders at all levels about urban policy. Is there one level of government, either federal, state, or local? that you think is better equipped to direct urban planning policy? I'm sort of thinking from our conversation yeah, with New regional, York. It's, region, re, it's regional. Regional. Yeah. There's no such thing as a city plan. These are regional plans, and, and they're conducted and they're put together with cities. This is a good time to talk about uh, Dallas. JFK was shot there. The city was awful zoo. My third best city to live in the world would be Dallas, Texas, oh. because... They created a regional commission there. And not only that, in Dallas, every area has university students and other people who will come and help plan your neighborhood so you make your best presentation to the commission for the overall good of Dallas. You don't go and say, well, we're South Dallas and this is, no, we're Dallas and we're in the South and here's how we're going to help make a better Dallas. Yeah, it's completely different thinking, isn't it, than what we've got here? Well, it it isn't completely different. We're the ones who are upside down. If you look at the rest of the world, and I worked in, in Paris, and I worked in London, even Moscow, the region is what's thought about. If you said, I'm, I'm planning in London, you're talking about a little district called the city? Please. No. 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 If you said, uh, I'm doing planning uh, in New York, Manhattan? No. Come on. Even Melbourne's better. Yeah, agree. Agree. And Brisbane's better. And Br- Brisbane's a lot yeah, better. Brisbane's a lot I, better. And I helped write that plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that basis, should be I mean, it was pretty controversial. I can't remember what, what year it was, but when we went through the um local government amalgamations mm-hmm. here and that which were much more successful in Victoria than they were here. Is that something that you think we should be trying again here? I don't think so. Uh, See, I think we have the wrong thought. Here, you're taking planning away from local governments. Uh, In the other cities around the world, they never had it. Right. So we just say, keep your city. But the planning authority is the greater Sydney planning authority. And people would go with that. Yeah. So you, know, you still have local government dealing with them. their other services yeah. and needs that they provide. And that's exactly what's happening now. There are local yeah. planning groups that are for each city. I would have just one planning group for the entire city and local committees that would work with the larger committee. They wouldn't work in isolation. 
And they certainly wouldn't work one building at a time, which is just impossible for me to think about. They work on the area. And once the area is planned, uh, in city, not to be mentioned, uh, but close to where we're having this interview, they're bringing in another supermarket. Very contentious thing. But why weren't we thinking about how we want to plan the area and where supermarkets would be and then there wouldn't be this fight because the supermarket people would know where supermarkets are supposed to go. Yeah. And when new supermarkets came in, I'd have about four or five levels of housing that came along with them. So we'd all be a win-win. We lost the fight about the supermarket, but we didn't gain any additional housing. We didn't gain any additional circulation. We didn't bring any buses or services. We just lost the fight. Now, had this been a regional commission, they would have said to the firm, uh, let's have the plans for all your stores. That's what we did in New York. So the football team said, we want a new ground. And they said, okay, there are two football teams. Will you two come together and tell us what your plans are? They ended up making one ground for both teams. But that's collaboration. It's not collaboration. Uh, in fact, it's quite tough planning. But it's all for the whole rather than the piece. Maybe it might be a good idea to move now to looking a little bit more because I'm passionate about community engagement and I guess the role that communities should be playing in urban policy development. See, we should adopt, and I've put this idea forward, that we should do community plans. And for community, I mean someplace like Mosma or Manly would be the community would be planning but it'd be planning for the whole. And when these plans are going, people from Mosman would be there, people from Leichhardt, people from all over the city are in your neighborhood helping you plan it because we all might live there someday. We're all part of it. Every, and I don't know if it's still this way, every Saturday uh, in Portland, a neighborhood plan's going on that people from all over neighborhoods around the city are engaged in working with that neighborhood for the Portland plan. And are these any individuals going? Anybody. Anybody going along? Anybody. Now, this is aided by professional facilities like you apparently are and others. And these plans are are done by the metro. It's not called a community plan. It's a metro plan for this area. So there's nothing called a community plan. These are metro plans for this area. And there's a, uh, the Oregonian runs a page again every Saturday on planning in Portland. And then what, what status does the Metro plan have in these situations? Like, is it, does it become like the blueprint that guides development? 20 years. 20 years as well. Okay. Minimum. Right. And it's not open to spot rezonings? No. No. Like just comparing that recently, because most councils, as, as you would know, have gone through you know preparing local strategic planning statements. Councils are not a level at which you would make a plan. It's not as though we're planning in this house where we're born to die there. We're going to move around. And part of our problem here, I had never thought of someone living in an area, going to high school in the area, and the university in the same area. When I was 18, I packed my bag. Dad and mom came down the bus depot, and I got on the bus. The next time I came home, 
There was no room there for me. I was gone. The next time I came back, I was 50. Let me talk about uh, planning, how we should plan our communities that are uh, outside of our metropolitan areas. I don't think our universities should be in the cities. University of Melbourne should be in Bathurst or someplace. We call them University of Melbourne. Mm. But um, why in the world is it there? Uh, why is the state capital in the principal city? There are only, I think, three U.S. cities that are capital. New York City is not the capital of New York. Albany is. The state university is located in Albany, mm. not in New York. Now, there's a nice New York university, but that's a private university. The state university is in Albany. The University of Iowa is in Iowa City. It's not in Des Moines, the capital of Iowa. The University of California is in Berkeley. Sacramento is the capital, not San Francisco. So if you're going to plan places, plan the activities at the place of the roles the places are going to perform. And I think that's one of our problems. We don't think about what the place role is, the economic, social activity. We just start building the place, and it's kind of topsy-turvy. Uh, and so anybody's guess is good as anybody else's. Mm. Uh, and when back in the days when I first came here, in the Whitlam era, they said, well, we want to plan these, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, the growth centers. Growth centers. Yeah. And I was looking with Tom in, and I said, what are they growing? He said, well, we're going to bring immigrants to them. I said, if I was, were an immigrant, would you go there? I'd go there for the opportunity. I said, that's what we had to plan. Let's plan opportunities. Tom got it. Mm. Wanted to get the university out of Melbourne, up to uh, Albury, Wodonga, uh, put convention centers, and since the rails used to be here, putting transactions. And so Albury's grown on the back of the activities that were located there, not just pushing people okay. there. Uh, so I think we got to move our state capitals out of these places. Um, when I was planning Parramatta, I said, weren't we the state capital? We should be again. Is there something important about the state capital being located in downtown Sydney? I don't think so. It just makes a traffic jam. <laughs> you know, we get along with Canberra. National legislators don't have to be, you know, in downtown Perth. Mm. They do all right in Canberra. Mm. And Canberra has become, uh, Canberra is the richest city in all of Australia. Maybe the dullest, but the richest. <laughs> and it's becoming a much more lively city because the Canberrans have put in a light rail and stuff that go someplace. So I think we ought to plan for what we want to be and stop playing against what we don't want to be. And it goes for all of our cities. It takes a lot of vision. It doesn't uh, because as I've seen in over my 80 some years, uh, the plan is almost organic. Once you start seeing how the land is laid and how the things are happening, uh, then it becomes pretty clear what needs to be done next. 
And I have been amazed how people who said, well, I never worked a day in my life or just been a gardener would have remarkably insightful about what should happen next here. And you've probably experienced the same thing. Yeah, occasionally. I have found, though, at a lot of um, sort of Sydney-based consultations that people, people, you know, find it hard to think about an alternative urban future. Like, and it's yeah, because they've been they're, they're they're traumatized. Yeah, yeah. By the way, the government has kind of messed over them. Yeah. Uh, but big cities like Portland, New York, Los Angeles, and so forth, people don't wear that trauma. No. Because they haven't gone through that kind of push and shove. But there are two things here that really, I think, make a big difference. Uh, the first is we have never put all of our transportation in one department. I think we're maybe the only city in the world that doesn't have a metropolitan transportation department. The second thing is uh, we have no infrastructure planning department where schools are going to be located, parks, in all this. Now, Robert Moses, everyone says he's a bad guy. He was one of the shrewdest bad guys you've ever come across because those parks wouldn't be in New York. That city wouldn't be as well connected. Now, we had some very bad ideas. We have to stop looking at the future through the rearview mirror. Mm. We're still planning for cars. Thank God the city of Sydney has a no parking rule, <laughs> but they're the only one. Mm. We should have a no parking rule here in Mossman. Every yeah. city should say no parking rules. Uh, if you want to build a building six stories high, go for it. But there's not going to be parking net. Well, I'm at all of our major collectors are they're just in gridlock anyway. I mean, you experience military road. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't need to be. No, it doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be. Yeah. I, if I were doing military road, I'd have probably a forty-story apartments all along military road and no parking. And uh, like in uh, Boston and so forth, the buses come up out of the ground where we have parking, and the bus serves and takes you downtown and so yeah. on. Why do you need to drive a car and let it sit there all day? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about your, your thoughts about, because it leads nicely into this as well, um, I guess investment in a very fast train. Mm -hmm. It's long been thrown around <laughs> as a topic in Australia, but it just doesn't seem to have really been able to get that much momentum and serious commitment. I know we've, we've talked just sort of briefly, I mean, we're, we're having Sydney's you know, second airport at Bedgeries Creek being under construction at the moment. Do you think we, that, that, that investment in that infrastructure would have been better served going into something like a very fast train? Uh, yes, but let's talk about the very fast train and why we're going to have it because people say we don't have a large enough population. We certainly have a large enough population because the fastest train from Washington, D.C. to Boston, which is a fast train. It's not a very fast train, but it's a fast train. Is about the same population as we have. So it can be done. The reason we don't have it is that we don't have connecting institutions. So if you're a professor at one university, you're only a professor at that university. 
what if like the University of California, we have nine campuses. We can't have an astrophysicist at every one of them. So we have to start thinking about how we load the infrastructure between Washington and Boston. There are a lot of institutional things there that work together to move freight, to move ideas, to move money and the like. So we got to think about that first. We don't just have it because we want to have it because it's a nice thing. Sonkunze is holding together an entire economy in Tokyo, you know, uh, to Osaka. What are we going to have along this? And then how do we construct it? Now, if I were constructing it, I would have it go through the Melbourne airport, come up through Shepparton and so forth, and go through where we currently have airports. That's what they did in Europe. And then those airports start being feeders to other places. And people get on the train, as I will when I go to Leipzig. I'll fly into Berlin or Munich, and then what I'll do, I'll take a train. And the train will get me to my destination in hour, hour, maybe 15 minutes. So we have to build a whole transportation system in which this is the part. Don't just build the train. No. So you build the whole thing. And I would go through the Western Sydney Airport and the like and up the coast so that you bring in those cities outside of Brisbane, Gold Coast and the like. Uh, or like, well, go up that coast, but then there'd be vast trains that connected people to these lines. That's exactly what's been done in Europe. Europe hasn't been falling in long for the, a fast train. They're connecting Berlin to Hamburg, and then they don't have to build new cities in between because those cities grow uh, with connecting trains and buses. And that's what would happen for us. We do need to redistribute our population, and that would happen if you built a transportation system that was connected. But the people who build the trains here don't build the roads mm. and don't build the tunnels. And the people who run the capitals, this is another thing. Because we have the system where the minister is an elected official, the minister is always in the capital city. Ministers in the United States are not elected officials. So they might be 150 kilometers from where the capital is, which is a good thing. Then the politicians can't get in their ear and they actually get some things done. So I think we have to replan governance yes, and yes. economic delivery. The reason we're not competitive here uh, on the street I live on, there are two very famous scientists. They spend, they're both once retired, once close to being retired. Where do they spend their time? On the internet, talking to people in other countries, not people in this country, because they're not connected. So the reason we can't compete, it's, it's like our, our competition, ability to compete in the Olympics went up. When we built a national competition center in Canberra, you know, and when our athletes have training facilities for the national competition and a network of feeders, we've got to do the same thing. If we're going to compete in the world, we have more resources than 90% of the world. If we're going to have battery operation, who has 
the raw material to make batteries. We do. If we're talking about light production and minerals and stuff, who has the mineral capacity? We, we do. It bothers the S out of me that we send aluminium to China from to make bicycles that we buy. When we could be making the bicycle here. Are you going to say we're dumber than people in China? We don't even have the debate. In America, you know how this fierce debate, particularly Trump, we're going to make it here in America. We have to start thinking about how we're going to compete in the world. Our cities are outcomes of our investment in human capital. Which is, again, coming back to looking at how we can, I guess, use that investment in innovation to foster greater city development. We can. We just assume it's almost like we're not supposed to do it. We we should never say we can't do it. We should say, how are we going to do it? Yeah, no, exactly. It, it is that sort of, oh, the regulatory environment just holding everything back. We cannot regulate ourselves to the future. We are trying to regulate innovation centers. There are natural places where innovation is going to invest in those. Don't try to regulate. Um we're sitting in a facility that is underutilized. Mm. Stop thinking about rents and start thinking about future activities and the rents will come. So I think our future lies in making the future the goal. People have to be creating tomorrow, not just living today. And have a mindset to want to create tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm 85 years old and I'm always thinking about What's going to happen, not what did happen. I've just got one last question I'd like to close on. Given all of your travels and the work that's your, that you've done, what would be your favourite livable, lovable city? Trieste. Why is that? It's Sydney with activity. I, I like uh, Trieste. I like Moscow. I like San Francisco where I'm from. But these are places where things are happening and you just have to walk out. Uh, I cannot ever remember saying, I'm going, when I was in San Francisco, I'd say, I'm going to the city and uh, to the the, um, Opera House area. I didn't say I had to purchase a ticket. That's where I'm going. Everything happened after that. (laughs) Okay. We're going to Berkeley. Well, we might end up going to a movie, visiting the university library, et cetera. That's what we have to be, yeah. the kind of place where we say, I'm going there, you know, I'm going to the rocks. Mm. We used to have that with the rocks, mm. but it's worn off. Mm. Uh, when I first came here thir- 30 years ago, so there'd be all these people who look like they'd, you know, just come in, uh, uh, from a farm, you know, walking around in Sydney, you know, you could see you know, the hayseed out of the hat. And I couldn't really understand them because they're kind of flat accents. They've disappeared because this is an exciting, interesting place to come and be. But if you go to New York, you'll see them. And we have to bring excitement back here and not regulate. I think building another football field as they did. I actually said when they invited me out here uh, one time, I was on the committee to select the Olympic game site. That was the site I selected. 
because all the infrastructure was there and the city was there. Where's the Los Angeles Olympics going to be? Downtown LA. Where's the Atlanta Olympics? Downtown Atlanta. You know, where are the Paris Olympics going to be? In Paris. Where's the London Olympics? In the Docklands next to, and I was involved in that one too. And when I went to uh, Rio and said we should do that, oh, no, 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 no. Because there wasn't enough <clears throat> money exchanged to do that. But every city that's had an Olympics in the downtown area is still thriving and booming, including Melbourne. If you're driving your car, you're going someplace. And you should have a notion of where you're going before you get in the car. And we're driving planning in a vehicle, not knowing where going. we're going. What's well, a sobering thought? Maybe to wind, to wind up on. <laughs> but I told you, I mean, it's a very simple thing, and yeah. you got it. Venice is going to be the world university, mm. and you got it. I didn't have to explain it. No, you wouldn't even have to go to Venice to get that idea because once you know anything about Venice, you know about all those old buildings and beautiful places and great views and so forth and interesting food and characters and the great plazas yeah university fits it's true it's like we've lost our way a little bit we haven't found a way and i don't know if we ever had a way maybe when we were in Parramatta, we did uh we have a new government and there are new opportunities here you are doing what we need to have done opening a discussion that can move us someplace and uh i think we need more of you to help us get to the kind of place I want my grandchildren who live here to be part of. Yeah, we certainly need to be having conversations about development and not be scared of them and let people say what they feel about development and, and cities and what they want from their cities. I yeah, totally agree and that's certainly what we're all about. So great having you join us today. Really loved our discussion and all the insights that you've given. It's it's a very rare opportunity to be able to speak with somebody that has had such a rich and distinguished career and yeah, just and is so willing to share. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, during the year, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like to hear about, please send it through via the Urban Talk website or email me directly at belinda at urbantalk.com.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast. Urban Talk.